Namaste. Greetings. Welcome to Indigenous Insights. I'm your host, Gladys Rowe, and I'm so grateful you are here. Each episode, I sit in conversation with Indigenous evaluation practitioners, leaders, researchers, and scholars who are working in, thinking about, and supporting Indigenous evaluation to share the learning they've experienced along the way. My hope is that these episodes allow you to reflect on how to design, implement, learn from, and support evaluation by, with, and for Indigenous families, communities, organizations, and nations. Join me and my guests as we open up our evaluation bundles to share what we've gathered in our journeys and bring them together into this space. I hope in these stories you will come to understand how we can collectively contribute to decolonial futures and strengthen Indigenous resurgence. Dante, I'm super excited today to have Terilyn Fern with me. Terilyn is the project director of Turtle Island Institute, a global Indigenous social innovation think and do tank, a teaching lodge enabling transformative change. She brings wisdom and understanding of Indigenous well-being and community building through rematriation and Indigenous ways of knowing. Carolyn's work over the last 30 years has focused on advancing social justice and systems change in the area of health, gender-based violence, education, and child welfare, having worked with over 400 rural, urban, Indigenous communities throughout Turtle Island. In 2017, she was the Director of Outreach and Support Services for the Canadian National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, and led a two-and-a-half-year process for family members and survivors of violence to share their truth. She is a Master's of Education candidate at York University and a research associate at the Waterloo Institute for Social Innovation and Resilience, focusing on understanding complexity theory, ethical space of engagement, Indigenous feminism, and healing-centered design. She sits on the Indigenous Advisory Circle for the Office of the Federal Ombudsman for Victims of Crime, focused on decolonization of the Canadian criminal justice system. Welcome, Terilyn. I'm so happy to have you here with me today. Well, it's good, Gladys. Thanks for having me. I'd love to, in addition to that kind of formal introduction, welcome you to introduce yourself to the listeners in a way that feels good to you as well. I'll start by saying Welagisguk in Sitnokaban, Nindeluisi, Miladouj, Nindeluisi, Terilyn Fern. Good day, all my relatives, and to you, Gladys. It's so good to be here today, and I'm really grateful that you invited me. My English name is Terilyn Fern. I'm a member of Gluskep First Nation. I'm Mi'kmaq. I'm a citizen of the Wabanaki Confederacy, and I'm a Snake Clan. My Mi'kmaq name, my spirit name is Miladouj, and that means hummingbird. And that that name was awakened for me over a seven-year process with the Medeowin Lodge and gifted by Anabanase, uh, Jim Dumont, the faith keeper in the eastern doorway of the Medeowin Lodge. And I originally, my home traditional territories are in Magi, Mi'kma'ki, the eastern shores of the Bay of Funday in Atlantic Canada, the Atlantic provinces. But I'm currently joining you today where my two feet are planted on the beautiful lands that have been stewarded by the Anishinaabe and the Haudenosaunee peoples, where I've been living in relationship with these lands now, geez, I think about 18 years, just north of Toronto, Ontario. So I've been really blessed to to live and work for and with Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples on these lands. So it's great to join you today. 
Wonderful. Thank you for sharing all those pieces of yourself and coming in in that whole way as well. I'd love to hear. So, uh, you know, in your introduction, there were there were some pieces of the work that you've been working on, are working on. So I'd love to maybe start with what are you working on right now and what is making you excited? <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's a loaded question. Well, maybe I'll add a little bit more to my introduction that might help to sort of shed a little bit more light on what my gifts are and what my roles and responsibilities are. I shared that I'm Mi'kmaq on my dad's side. I am the granddaughter of the late Doris Peters, and she grew up in Bear River First Station. That's where my grandfather and father grew up as well. And when I was younger, in my English name I shared with you, I used to go by Lynn and not Tara Lynn. And it's funny because, you know, when you try to find your name on those little Christmas decorations or different ornaments, and I could never find Tara Lynn on there. So I went by Lynn because it was a way of sort of identifying to being sort of similar to everyone else and and being accepted into a more normative place. And when I was 21, my grandmother shared a really unique and interesting story with me. And she always said to me that going by Lynn didn't give my name the fulsome of my spirit. And so she shared with me that when she was a little girl, and she's the youngest of, I think, 14 siblings, When she was younger, she used to travel with her brothers and sisters, my great aunts and uncles, down the eastern seaboard. Our territory is Atlantic provinces in through Quebec, down through Maine, and a little bit down through the northeastern United States. And they used to travel in the summertime. And when they traveled, they used to follow the Barnum and Bailey Circus. And my great aunts were powerful log rollers. And they used to compete in log rolling and axe throwing. They used to sell their baskets uh, during the summertime. And as many siblings have, I know when I was younger, I was always asked to take along my younger siblings. So my grandmother was the youngest and she always sort of tagged along. And she was really mesmerized with the lion tamer and the lion tamer tent. So from dawn till dusk, my relatives, her brothers and sisters could find her there. And there was something about this lion tamer wielding this sort of behavior of all these lions. And that lion tamer's name was Terrell Jacobs. And so my father's name is Terrell Lewis. And Terrell was after this famous lion tamer. Lewis is my great-grandfather, who was the hereditary chief of Bear River First Nation. So I am my grandmother's firstborn grandchild and my father's firstborn. So I received that name, Terrell, and they added a Y-N, Tara Lynn. And I have my grandmother's middle name, Teresa, as well. So my grandmother shared this story with me when I was 21. And so ever since I was 21, I went by Tara Lynn. And I always think that story is really important in our Indigenous ways of knowing our spiritual name, Miladaj, has many stories about my responsibilities and my gifts and what I have the ability to do to move in many multi-directional ways as a hummingbird. I also have the ability to stand in the physical realm and pierce my long beak through the spiritual realm to reclaim information and knowledge and wisdom from the spiritual realm from our ancestors. So in addition to this beautiful responsibilities and gifts from my Mi'kmaq name, I also have an English name that really has sort of foretold some of my life's journey to get to this point. And some of it you spoke about in your introduction, where I feel I've been wielding lions in the many systems that I've sort of ventured to disrupt and to change and understand. And so 
throughout my whole life, I have been working with and for Indigenous people and have had the privilege, like the hummingbird, to travel all over Turtle Island and to work with and for, I think, over 400 Indigenous communities, urban and rural, isolated, and in many different areas of education, health, child welfare, justice, and violence prevention. And so right now, what excites me, as you mentioned, I'm just getting off of working the past few years with the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. And when I ended that time uh, in 2019, I started working with Turtle Island Institute because I wanted to deepen a sense of inquiry into our old ancestral ways of knowing. What is it that we have yet to understand in coming to retrieve that can help us in these times to move forward. And so what excites me is, is this work that we're doing with Turtle Island Institute, where we sort of help to support the activation of spiritual DNA into places and, and system spaces. And so we breathe spirit into system spaces that have become disconnected from the spiritual way of life. And we do that by amplifying Indigenous knowledge systems, ancient wisdom traditions, and Indigenous science. And so what does that have to do with evaluation? I'm older now, and as you mentioned, I'm trying to finish up my master's in education. And I think one of the things I find as being older and doing research for 30 years the longer you spend doing practical work, <laughs> the more research questions that you have and the more excited you get about process and understanding how we're engaging in the work that we're doing and are we doing it in a good way and is it aligned with the protocols and do we need to shift course in that? So there's a real alignment and excitement in the work that we're doing now at Turtle Island Institute, my own personal work through my master's, as well as what we've had to create during COVID and our virtual teaching lodge space. So we're just finishing an evaluation, a developmental evaluation on our virtual teaching lodge at Turtle Island Institute. And also I just finished engaging in a 13 moon year-long process around the sacred fire of peace in an inquiry to better understand what is it that we need during these times to do this work and to support us in this courageous work that each of us are doing in research and evaluation. So that's what I'm working on now. We're just wrapping up the final learnings and sharing back from that 13 moon journey. Amazing. There's so much there in such a, a short amount of time you just shared with me. So a few things that I just wanted to draw forward. So first of all, thank you for sharing about your name, about both of your names, and so much of what you shared there about Tara Lynn and initially shortening it and then understanding really the power and the gift of your name from the stories of your ancestors is also part of my story. And so I connected with that just so deeply. I was named after my great granny, Gladys Moose. And for the longest time, I was this young child with this old woman's name and I didn't, I didn't like it. It was something that I hated actually. And it took a long time for me to understand the importance of carrying the name of our ancestors. And so thank you for offering that into this space. And then a few different things also came up in terms of what you're working on right now and what you're excited about. And I'm excited about what you're working on right now, thinking about how you do the work. You talked about processes and you talked about different ways of engaging 
And so I wonder if we can explore a little bit more how you do the work of inquiry, particularly rooted in Indigenous knowledge systems. And if you wanted to, or if you could draw some examples from the developmental evaluation or your experience sitting with the sacred fire about how we inquire in a way that's rooted in Indigenous knowledge systems. One of the biggest things that I'm always reminded of is to be aware and to be open to the signs of spirit. We hear many times that research is ceremony, that even evaluation is ceremony. And I read in a book that, I can't remember the book, but they said research and evaluation is a spiritual process of seeking knowledge through relationships. And I'd like to build on that because it is a deeply spiritual process But in addition to seeking knowledge, I'd like to use the word wisdom. And I think that evaluation and research is a deeply spiritual process of seeking wisdom through relationships. And I think that there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom, and that is lived experience, and that is the action pieces. And so we can read knowledge in a book. We can listen to people share knowledge. Um, Even we can listen to people share their innate wisdom. I spend time with many elders and knowledge carriers. And so just the nuggets of wisdom that they share with me. But in order for me to shift that from knowledge and understanding, I have to live into that. And for it to become my own wisdom, I have to value that and live into that. And so how I approach the work is really is through living into the research, living into the evaluation, living into the work that we're doing. And part of that is sort of reaffirms that we are part of these processes. We are part of this inquiry that we need to do. When I engaged around the sacred fire, the reason why I wanted to engage in the sacred fire was because I wanted to look at sacred fire as pedagogy and how we learn from and with the sacred fire and in that space. And that sacred fire of peace is the sacred fire that's been burning since 1992 at the Soul of the Mother, which is the healing lodge of Gachandaguas, Diane Longboat, whose Haudenosaunee, her lodge is located on the rivers of the Grand River of Six Nations. And she got a spiritual calling in 1992 to leave her work at the University of Toronto and to go back home and to create this sacred fire of peace and to do this spiritual work. And so she's had a fire burning for those years and we're privileged to have her sit as an elder and a grandmother on our elders and knowledge carrier circle at Turtle Island Institute. And so I was called to do this work around the sacred fire because last year, Well, in 2021 now, the National Family Advisory Circle, which continued on some of their work after we submitted our final report for the National Inquiry, they had did a year-end report that they were submitting to the Prime Minister on to really highlight the lack of action that was taken after we submitted our final report. And during that inquiry, as you mentioned, I was the health director and the director of outreach and support services. And part of my role was to develop a trauma-informed framework and really look at working with elders and knowledge keepers and ceremonial folks in each of the territories where we were going to host our community hearings, where over 2,400 family members and survivors were going to share their truth. And in that process, and I don't speak to it much publicly, but I also was asked to carry the bundle for the national inquiry. So part of that spiritual bundle and that responsibility I had was really important. And when we designed the inquiry, we ensured that everywhere we had an 
a community hearing, we held a sacred fire. So that sacred fire connects us to all the sacred fires of creation. And it's a direct conduit to the creator, to our ancestors, to all of creation. And so it's a real powerful fire. A year and a half ago, I had a call from some of the family members and survivors, and they said, we're going to be presenting our report to the prime minister. And we just feel like we would love, can you help us? Can you ha- create a sacred fire for us so that we have that fire, that place, that space that we feel comfortable and safe and supported, but also as an accountability mechanism, just to reinforce the accountabilities we have to the ancestors and to those stolen sisters that were gone. So I had a day and a half and I called Diane and said, here's what they would like. Can we make it happen? And she, of course, was very accommodating. And I ended up by myself with another woman tending the lodge and tending that sacred fire. And that was my first introduction to the sacred fire and holding space. And it was right around the time, several days later, when the first 215 children's bodies were found with the Kamloops Residential School. So it was at that time I was around the sacred fire as well. So this sacred fire was a real ceremonial space, a real place and space of understanding, a place that we knew if we were going to do any wisdom gatherings, any wisdom-seeking inquiries, that entering into the spiritual realm and seeking guidance from our ancestors, that's where all our wisdom and knowledge sits, that doing that around the sacred fire was really important. So that's where, where that started, that sacred fire as pedagogy and engaging in that work. And one of our elders, Dr. Reg Croshu, he's Blackfoot from Pekani, and I know his daughter, we worked several decades ago, <laughs> and she's a nurse in the National Health, Aboriginal Health Organization. I was reading somewhere many, a couple of years ago, about him speaking about song as validation. And so one of the other ways that I approach this work, I'm a drum carrier. I have many rattles and drums and I carry songs from many different nations that have been gifted to me. Really, the drum is my helper. The aduguan is how we say it in our language. And it really helps to activate and connect spiritually with that work that I do. And so the drum is my helper. I'm gifted many songs. And one of the things that stood out is uh, Reg spoke about song as validation. And he said, you know, when we enter into an inquiry and we want to seek wisdom and knowledge that is held by the ancestors, that we have to ask them for a song. And song is like a consent. It's like a validation. It's like the permissions given to the ancestors that you can go ahead and to do this work. And so that's what I did. I followed the protocols around the fire in the lodge and I offered tobacco to the ancestors. And I asked them that night, I was sleeping for two nights around the sacred fire and tending that fire for the family members while they were preparing to give their report. And the song came and that song came to me and I woke up in a vision in the middle of the night And I saw a vision of the Milky Way, which in our language we call Skidegamuch, which is is how we enter from the spirit world into this physical realm. And I saw many beings, many children, many elders and families, and a lot of our kin relations, the animals, the four-legged, the swimmers, the winged, the crawlers, they were all sort of dancing along the Milky Way back to the spirit world. And that vision was very clear to me. And, And I remembered that song that it came. And I recorded singing that song during that time because I didn't want to forget (laughs) in the early hours in the morning around that fire. And the next day I sent an audio recording of that to one of my elders and 
to Diane, whose lodge it was, and she lit her pipe that morning and listened to the song. And she said, this is the song of the eighth fire. And the eighth fire is part of our seventh fire prophecies. And again, approaching our work and how we do this work, the wisdom of our elders and our ancestors that have gone before us is first and foremost and fundamental in how we understand how to be the principles and the values that we embed. And when I was 18 years old, I heard the late William Commanda share about the seven fires prophecy. And you know, when you're younger and you don't realize the magnificence of what you're witnessing until you're now 49 going, wow, I just wish I'd known how precious that was. But I remember thinking when I saw him unravel that seven fires wampum belt and share that story, that was the longest wampum I had ever seen. And that seven fires prophecy speaks about these seven prophets. The first prophet is from Mi'kma'ki, my nation and territory. And it talks about these sort of epochs of time over hundreds of years that when these things come to fruition and during these epochs, that it'll be a guidepost for us as the human family to understand, here's a marker. And so those seven fires have come to fruition in this time now. And we're at a real critical impasse in the work that we do, in the lives that, how we are in our ways of being. Because in order for us to, as a human family, come together to light the eighth fire of peace, we have to make some big decisions about how we are approaching our daily lives and our daily practice. And so I'm mindful of that. So this song as validation is really important. I was really sort of fortunate that that song came immediately when I asked. There's other times in my practice where I offer tobacco and follow protocols and things don't, they don't come always that quickly. And I think for us, it's really important to be cognizant of what is time and on whose time are we doing this work. So that's some of the ways in in which we approach our work. I talked earlier about trauma-informed. One of the things that I was doing when I was sitting for 13 moons around the sacred fire, and I would visit that fire several times a month and sleep overnight and tend to that fire. And one of the things that I started was, well, what is this trauma-informed care and how we practice our work? How do we do research? How do we do trauma-informed evaluation? What does that look like? And when I was in the inquiry, I kept seven journals. And what I was doing was critical sort of reflective re-remembering, going through these journals around the sacred fire to better understand what I could come to know that could help us in these times to support our practice in how we were doing this work. And I was really interested in how healing and my journal stories interwove with these relationships of storytelling and the listener and the story and the inquiry that we were doing. I am just sitting here really, really moved by by what you're sharing, Terlin. And there was a piece at the end there that I could picture you sitting by the fire with the journals. And it made me think about mechanisms for meaning making, for sense making, and the ways that we need to build relationship with our experiences in order to take it to the next level of then understanding what those experiences have to offer us and have to teach us. And so not only personally, but then I also translate that into my practice as an evaluation practitioner, thinking about what are the ways that I can access my inner knowing, um, access spirit in this work, and then how do I 
use my Cree ways of knowing, being, and doing to then make sense of what it is that I've gathered. And so that vision, I could see it clearly in my head because I also just saw this amazing YouTube video that you have created that has the song and some, I think it's Elder Longboat in that video as well. And so I think I could picture that the sacred fire space. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that sense-making or that meaning-making and how that can be facilitated through through connection to spirit and building relation. Yeah, for sure. The sacred fire is just one example of our ancient indigenous technologies, as we might call it in modern times. And so it really, there's many ways where we can activate our spiritual DNA through the work that we're doing in the practice. And many have spoken about ceremony and how ceremony is research and ceremony is evaluation. And I think that one of the biggest things that's for me to remember during ceremony is, is it's it's our way of being and then it has to be integrated into our daily practice. So ceremony is not, at least for me, it's not something like an event that I go to. You know, I hear many talk about, oh, I'm going to ceremonies or we had this ceremony and those are beautiful, beautiful engagements and it's a daily practice. So what is, I think about in my responsibility to be engaged actively with spirit, what are those daily practices that I do? We are uh, people of the dawn. I, I mentioned I'm a member of the Wabanaki Confederacy. That's our four nations, the Penobscot, Passamaquoddy, us as Mi'kmaq and Awolostakwe people. And part of our responsibility as Wabanaki is people of the dawn. And so when the sun rises in the east, just before it rises and you see it peak up, there's a transitional time between Nebuchadnezzar, Grandmother Moon and Grandfather Sun, where everything is quiet and still. And it's when the sky is like purpley fuchsias, pinks, and just before the dawn breaks. And if you'll notice, the trees are still the birds are quiet. All of creation and all our kins and relatives in creation are silent. And for us, that is the sacred ceremonial time that all of creation understands. It's the time for the Mi'kmaq to interact with creator, with the spirit realm. And so it's an important ceremonial time for us. And so I get up every morning, you know, now do I do it every day? No, there's days that I sleep in or I forget. But part of my way of being and being engaged in spiritual practice is that daily ritual. And it's our responsibility as Wabanaki to greet the morning sun and prepare the preparation and the protocols and all of the work and preparation needed. So when the energy of the sun travels from the east across the sky to the Western doorway, the Southern nation people then take on their responsibility and the Western doorway people then take on their responsibility when the sun is setting as well. And so I think that a part of activating through the sacred fire for me is it's a way to uphold the spiritual and cultural integrity of the work that I do. And it requires discipline and it requires vulnerability and humility and some sacrifice to be able to do that. 
But what it enables when I engage from that place of, of practice, it engages access to realms and knowledge and a way of understanding and sense making into the work that I'm doing and living. It makes it so much easier. And I think about, I have 100% love for us as two-leggeds, as a human family. But one of the things that I really realized for me in those 13 moons around that sacred fire is that the power of our ancestors and our ancestral knowledge and their wisdom. And, you know, I experienced some, we have ancestors ceremonies at the lodge twice a year. And when I started my inquiry around the sacred fire, it was in June of 2021. And that October is when we have ancestor ceremonies. And that's in our teachings when the veil between the physical realm, and the spiritual realm is really thin. And it's one of the only ceremonies where we aren't centered in life, that you're actually calling in those that have passed in that spirit realm. And when about five days before that ceremony, one of my elders, Donna Augustine, she does a lot of repatriation for our bones and sacred artifacts from museums. She had been working, I guess, but really demanding a Harvard that had 121 of our ancestors' bones, which they called specimens, that she had been trying to get released back to us as a people so we could honor them with a spiritual burial. On September 11th, she went down quite ironically on that day with a cohort of faith keepers and retrieved our ancestors and did a spiritual reburial. She came to the lodge during the ancestor ceremony that October, and those ancestors visited me in that lodge, and they provided me with guidance and insight into what it is I was doing around the sacred fire, and they guided me with some sharings and teachings of A, ceremonies and things that I had to do, but also with knowledge of what needed to be done during these times. And one of the things that they had mentioned was tethering to the sacred fire. So as you mentioned, I'm the project coordinator of Turtle Island Institute, and we're a project on the Makeway Charitable Societies. And at the time, we were going through this transition and we have a virtual teaching lodge, but we also had an action lab space in Niagara Falls. And we had some staff changes and things moving around. And during that time, there was nobody at the Action Lab living at the Action Lab space in Niagara Falls. I live about an hour and a half from there. And we had this space that was in sort of like a, well, it was a business style building. We didn't have any land based. Of course, we were there by the beautiful thundering waters of Niagara Falls. And one of the things that came was that in order for people, for projects, for organizations to really sustain through these times of what we're going to be called to do in this work moving forward is we have to be spiritually tethered to the sacred fire of peace. So when our that came through and I listened to that, that message. And when in March of this past year, when our lease came up, I didn't renew it. And we moved all of our in-person on the land ceremonial work to the lodge and tethered to the sacred fire. So I think it's really important for us to, when you get into a practice of engaging spirit and centering spirit and being spirit led in our work, and that's where I'm at now. I went from trauma-informed to healing-centered to spirit-led. So I'm kind of looking at these principles that are how I do my work is really sort of spirit-led in this way. And that's ever-evolving and changing. And so I think that those are some of the principles. Those are some of the things that came to light of how we do this work. And the other thing is, 
I'm a practitioner long before I've been a scholar. You know, I've published some things and this and that, but I have sort of 30 years of doing all this work in community, with community. My background is also in nursing and child welfare, and I'm a scientist of behavioral neuroscience. So I'm really familiar with reflectivity and reflection and introspection. Those sort of are, those are just daily practices for me. And I think that spending the time in the concerted efforts around the sacred fire to do that was just affirming that that needs to be part of all the work that we need to do moving ahead. And so I think as evaluators, as practitioners, the question that you asked, how am I bringing spirit to this work? And it's not even to this work. It's, It's in some of the spaces that I work with some folks, there's sort of this separation between my work and my personal life or my work relations and my other interpersonal relations. And it's kind of like all the same, (laughs) you know, it's like you really can't be one in one space. And I would challenge folks that think they could and be another in another space because who we are, our inner world is a projection of our external world. And in order to externally do the work to uphold the cultural and spiritual integrity of that work, then we have to look at our inner living system and we have to sort of turn ourselves inside out and do that work that we are not separate from this process. And and that's the learning and the growing. One of the other things that I'll just quickly mention is that it came to me last spring when I was engaged again in this 13 moon process. One morning when I woke up at dawn and I was engaging in ceremony, And one of the messages that came was that you have to bring together the sacred feminine energies of creation. And so I called one of my elders, that's Mi'kma'han, who's Mi'kmaq grandmother, and she's teaching me my language, and she's so knowledgeable. She knows our old ancestral language, and she knows the old feminine that's been erased in our language and our stories. And one of the things that came is that we have to restore the sacred feminine in this work that we do. And how do we do that? So it's really important for me, as Diane says, I have a responsibility to continue the spiritual continuance of life. And so in order to do that, we bring in and center Indigenous language. And our languages need to be decolonized. We have different orthographies that uphold the erasure of the sacred feminine of the stories. One example might be grandmother moon in our language is Deplunaset. And when you look in our Mi'kmaq dictionary or talk to some of our language speakers in the current orthography, Deplunaset says moon. And it's really extracted all of the context and the deep meaning and understanding of how to be and when you break down the word bundle of Deplunaset and you rematriate the sacred feminine in there, it speaks about how we come together, how we commune at night, how we sing, how we dance, uh, how we treat each other. And it's so much more full, fulsome in understanding how to be. And so that's part of this work that we do. And being spirit-led is also about centering our Mi'kmaq language and, and all languages. And Turtle Island Institute, we now through this evolution of the 13 moons have evolved into sort of the old ancient white grandmother turtle. And 
one of the elders said, Grandmother Turtle speaks all languages. And so we're a network of many different languages to help us to understand the larger context of this work that we're doing. And so we're a bit of a hub that approaches our work with inviting language speakers to help us collectively come to knowing uh, together as we're making sense of this work. And then I'll finally just say, it's really important that we center the knowledge and the wisdom of those with lived experience and community scholars. And that's what we do and center our work. And, and I remember at this Feminine Energies Gathering, Maui Dajik Abajik, that we had in June of 2022, which was the final gathering just before my four-day fast of this 13-moon journey. One of our Anishinaabe grandmothers, Sherry Kopanes, who also sits on our circle of elders and wisdom carriers, she shared a story of, about the late El Clifford Skeed. And he said to her once, we shouldn't go around talking about things we haven't lived. <laughs> and that's a principle that we have adopted and incorporated into our work because it's really important. And I guess that speaks a little bit to the difference between knowledge and wisdom is that living into our practice, living into our work gives us not authority, but gives us, and maybe it is the authority, maybe it is, but it, it upholds the culture and spiritual integrity of our work. It, it authenticates how we are doing this work. And we have to do that on a continued basis. The statement you just made there about living into our practice, I think, brings together for me all of the threads of the story and examples and experiences and offerings you have shared in the last half hour, 40 minutes that we've spent together so far. And when you shared that you're not a practitioner, you're not this, you're not this, you're not this separate, but rather you're a whole person and you need to show up as a whole person reminds me of, I don't just like take my practitioner hat off at the end of the day. And then I'm in this entirely different person, but how are we living in congruence with who we are. And then from that space, from that strong foundation, then working into this realm of Indigenous evaluation or inquiry or research or innovation, wherever it is that we are interacting in, we need to be in that space from our whole authentic grounded selves. Absolutely. And, and listening to you has me thinking about one of the things that I'm excited about sort of now is this reawakening the human spirit is kind of what we do in many different places and spaces. And that first piece of that is connecting to self, right? And the second piece of that is connecting with each other, our earth mother, and then all of creation. So I think about our field of practice and how do we come together? We have this virtual teaching lodge space that is a network for folks to commune together. And so a lot of this work we do in isolation with spirit, we do, it's a personal journey, but it's also an interpersonal journey together and collectively doing that. And there is a place and space for us to commune together to support one another. You know, we're all in a large network of, of folks doing this work. So they're sharing and learning and supporting that needs to happen as well. That leads to, you know, a question that I want to ask you about what specifically for Indigenous evaluators or people, Indigenous people who are working in this realm of inquiry, what would you like to share to them specifically? Like, 
um, in terms of your hope or your, you know, words of wisdom for that group, for me, for others who are working in this realm, inviting into relationship and building community. I'm wondering if there's something you'd like to share there. In 2019, I'm going to share with a story. <laughs> in, in 2019, I had the opportunity just before COVID. Well, it was it was November 2019. I was asked by Chief Robert Joseph of the Kwakwake and Wak Nation and Reconciliation Canada were a prototype partner of ours at Turtle Island Institute. And I was asked by him and Karen Joseph to attend a week-long gathering that he was bringing all of Reconciliation Canada together. And I was asked to come and to provide some support and just to be a part of that and to provide support to the staff. And just before I left, a colleague of mine said to me, hey, we have an opportunity for you to we're, we're doing a drum making workshop and we have an extra space. Somebody dropped out. Would you like to come? And I have made drums, but I hadn't made drum in, gosh, about 18 or 19 years, maybe 20 years. And I used to make drums when I lived in the West Coast. And we would do with some of the elders, some drum making workshop with youth that were in the justice system and share songs. And anyway, I thought, geez, well, that's an invitation that you don't say no to. There's a reason why I've been invited to make a drum. So I went with it. So I think one lesson, like going with your intuition, I think is really important being connected with that intuition. So I went and made this drum in the drum making workshop. I don't know if you've ever made a drum before, but you have the, the wooden frames and then they hand out the hide. And this was a deer hide. And typically when you make a drum, there's the inside of the hide, which is really rough texture. And the outside, which is usually the outside facing part of the drum is quite smooth. And you make the drum with the rough side on the inside and the smooth side on the out. And they handed me, the person leading the drum workshop handed me this hide and I looked and I saw the inside and it had this beautiful marbling on the inside. And it reminded me of the Milky Way. And I thought, wow, that's really beautiful. I didn't want to put it on the inside because nobody could see it. I just felt like it needed to be shown on the outside. And I had messaged my sister and said, do you have a drum? I know you sing and you're a carrier and I think you use someone else's drum. Do you have your own drum? And she said, no. I said, I'm making you a drum right now. So I wanted to make sure that my intention for making this drum, I was thinking about her and putting all this good energy into her when I was making her this drum. Anyway, I decided to flip the hide the opposite way so that the rough side was outward facing, but it was this beautiful marbling. And so I started to string the drum and the person beside me said, oh, oh, you're doing it wrong. That you got the hide opposite in the wrong way. And I said, oh, no, I know. I said, but look at it. It's so beautiful. I said, I don't want to put it on the inside out. And they're like, okay. I was stringing it more and more and threading it, the sinew through the hide, attaching it to the frame. And then one of the helpers came by and said, oh, no, you have to undo it. Don't do this any further. You, <laughs> you, you're doing it wrong. It's supposed to be flipped the other way. And I said, I know, I know the smooth side's supposed to be out facing, but look how beautiful it is. I just feel like this should be, be shown to the world. It reminds me of the Milky Way. And they're like, okay, well, you know, <laughs> I said, oh. anyway, finally, the person, I was just finishing up and wrapping it up and the drum maker came by and said, oh dear, you did this wrong. You did it the wrong way. I said, no, I know. I said, I actually intentionally did it this way. And for some reason, I just feel that it's meant to be this way. So thank you so much for this opportunity. 
And we engaged in the process after that seven days to awaken those drums. So when I was asked by Chief Robert Joseph and Karen to come out and support Reconciliation Canada near Whistler at a retreat, I typically, when I travel, I bring my own bundle and my own drums or rattles or my feathers, or it depends on what the helpers, you know, what helpers I need to pack up my bundle to go when I'm asked to do this kind of work. And at the time, I've never traveled without my own drum. But at the time, I had this feeling that I should be taking this drum with me. And so I packed up the drum and I headed on a plane out out to Brew Creek at Whistler. And when I arrived there, I introduced the drum and my bundle to the lands, to the waters, to the trees. I lived in the West Coast for in Lekwaman-speaking territory for 10 years It was a very important place for me and the people. My son was born there as well. And so the next morning when we gathered in circle and we were doing introductions, I had an opportunity to introduce myself, but also to introduce my bundle and the helpers and the drum. And I shared that story of the drum and Chief Robert Joseph said to me, Tara Lynn, I'm, I'm so grateful that you shared the story of this drum He said, this is a healing drum. And this drum reminds us that we need to turn ourselves inside out in preparation for the times, the hard times to come. And so it was really beautiful, those words that he shared about that healing drum. And he said, thank you. Thank you for standing strong in your intuition and understanding and and your guidance from spirit and how to do this work. And even though three times you were tempted and, and told you're doing it wrong, you still stuck along that spiritual path of alignment to bring this drum to us. This is a powerful, powerful medicine drum. And he actually gifted me a song for that drum and that bundle that we have permission to sing a song that one of the old chiefs who I knew dearly gifted him and his uh, chief Robert Joseph granddaughter carries that song now. And it's a song of the Thunderbird, a song that you sing to carry on in hard times. And so I, when I came home that November in 2019, that was the last time I went home for Christmas in December of 2019. It was the last time I'd spent Christmas with my family before COVID happened. And I gifted my sister that drum, followed some protocol and also the stories of that healing drum. And then sure enough, in March 2020, COVID pandemic hits. And so I think Chief Robert Joseph's prophetic vision of what we need to do to turn ourselves inside out courageously, you know, to be able to understand what it is that we need to do to move into healing spaces and places and to be spirit-led requires us to do that work. How do we show up in these spaces where we challenge our beliefs and values and assumptions and bias? How do we show up in these spaces, especially if we're doing Indigenous work, where we ignite kindness, honesty, and honest kindness and compassion in the work that we're doing, in the inquiries that we're investigating? And so if I could sort of just leave that story and and that wisdom. So part of me, I've been carrying that story with me. And that was part of, again, to authenticate my own cultural and spiritual integrity in my work was like, yeah, you know, the sacred fire is an ancient indigenous technology, that sacred fire of peace, but I need to be in relationship. And I need to continue to turn myself inside out and doing this work. And I started my healing journey when I was 26, (laughs) intentionally, and I'm 49 now. And so it's an ongoing process, but to cultivate, to be spirit led, but to cultivate the level of humility and understanding 
and compassion and emotional maturity that's needed to engage in these inquiries and to do this work and to be in right, respectful relationships, not only with each other as a human family, but with all of creation, we have to do that work and turn ourselves inside out. So I'll leave you with that and the big wisdom of Chief Robert Joseph. Such big wisdom. Can I mask which means I'm grateful for you in Swampy Cree. This has been such a nourishing conversation, Terlin, and it's been a gift to sit with you in this time for this podcast episode. I know that the stories that you've shared and the wisdom that you've offered um, and, and the glimpse into your experiences will continue to resonate many, many, many years beyond today, here and now as we sit in conversation. And so I want to thank you for this time, for sharing with us and Ego Say. Well, I'll let us see.